1: Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne. And with me today is the marvelous James Junkin. James, how are you? Great. How are you? Oh, fantastic for this time in the morning. I can tell you it's it's always a great honor to talk to our friends in the U.S. and yeah, especially so yourself. Now, James, well-known in safety circles around the world, but for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your history in safety, what you're currently doing, and
0: what led you into the industry? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I look at safety as one of the things that we can all agree on internationally. Every person out there wants their loved one and themselves to come home safe from work. And sadly, that's not always the case. So I like being a safety professional because it it connects with people. If you're not a people person, it's hard to be a safety professional. So I like what you guys are doing in Australia. And I hope our, our mission is international in the sense that we all want workers to come home safe, especially from high hazard jobs. So I am the CEO of a company called Mariner Gulf Consulting and Services, which is a full-service occupational safety and health consulting firm. Our main practice specialty is in oil and gas, but we work in construction, manufacturing, some some of the different various specific trades, and the contractor networks, and the hiring client networks. I do a lot of speaking uh, as CEO, but you ask a great question. How did you get involved? In safety, and and I wasn't born to this to this to this profession. I I actually came out of the operational side of the oil and gas industry. I spent a while being president and CEO of a company called Trico Oil Company, and then I left as an executive in the oil business and went to Mercedes Benz U.S. International, that little company, right, and worked for them and part of their management team, building the M Class, R Class, C Class type SUV vehicles. And then I decided I really liked the idea of management process consulting. So me and my wife moved to a little town called New Orleans, Louisiana, the big easy, home of Mardi Gras. And we decided to start a management process consulting company focused on really contractors in the oil and gas industry. Typically mom and pop shops with a hundred less employees and working with them on getting the business aspects of their operations in line. And as I met with business owners, they were like, great, you're t- teaching us how to reduce our debt and and helping us with our HR. But really, we have an issue surrounding this thing called IS NetWorld. And that's a third-party verification system, or Veriforce, or back in the day, PEC Safety, VETA. We need some help with that. And I had no idea. I was like, "Well, show it to me." And I'm like, I could learn to do that. They said, we need someone to come do a safety meeting and because we can't afford a full-time safety professional, we need someone come in here and, and, and help us out a little bit. And so it, my, my, my passion really arose out of clients asking it to us to add that to what we offer from a business standpoint. And so I went back to school. I got a degree in occupational safety and health. I started becoming very active in, in, in the training side of safety, particularly in the training side of o- the oil and gas industry. And then the BP oil spill hit. Yeah. Yeah. And that changed everything about my life. From my my passion about being a safety professional to where we still do a little bit of management consulting, but 99% of what we do in our business is focused around occupational safety and health. Yeah. Yep.
1: Going back to school to give yourself the skills and knowledge to go and take on additional
0: work. How hard was that? It's difficult being a working professional and going to school. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot's changed since I first went to school several years ago. But I wanted to pursue occupational safety and health, and I wanted to dig into the safety management system side of, of occupational safety and health. I read an author internationally known, Fred Manuel, and he changed my views on a lot of things when it came to occupational safety and health being focused primarily on the worker that the worker makes bad choices. If we could just get the worker to, to change some of the things that they do, then all of our problems would be solved. Fred challenged that and, and others have challenged that. Dr. Hopkins down in, in Australia, a lot of his works are particularly related to the Mine disaster and to disastrous decisions made in his book about the Deepwater Horizon. All that really informed my, my way of thinking. And, and I'm glad to see, at least in the U.S., you're starting to see students train that way, that really we're looking at the system. So I had a passion for it, and that, that helped me get through some of the, the writing assignments, some of the more technical side of, of safety and the industrial hygiene side, still focused on the goal of getting workers home safe. And so that was my experience with the university. I wouldn't train it in the world. I'm, I'm about to be done with my masters here pretty soon. Uh anybody wants to give me some help in advanced <laughs> industrial hygiene, I'd appreciate it. Just hit, it, hit me up at james at marinergolf.com. I'm not the best mathematician, but it's all it all goes to help me and to help others. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. All right, a couple of things that you just spoke about there, not
1: blaming the workers, that's a philosophical shift from the old school safety we had where bad work about bad, bad outcome. I've spent most of my life as a, a I don't know, blue class, fluoro class worker and I've I've never met a worker who hasn't made a mistake at work or made a mistake in life. I don't I don't think they exist to be honest. I mean I can only speak for myself, and I make mistakes every single day, every single day. So it is nice that we seem to be moving away from that sort of behaviourist approach about making the perfect worker and instead trying to make a safer workplace and safer systems. You mentioned safety management systems. I'm just interested on your take. If you had to give someone who's completely ignorant about safety... Uh, A brief description of what a safety management system is, what would you say?
0: I would say a safety management system is a methodology used in order to identify and control hazards in the design phase of the work. Mm Everything about a safety management system for management buy-in to management reviews, to continuous improvement, to establishing hazard identification risk assessments and all the different components of a written safety management system, the things that you find in ISO 45001 and ANSI Z10, right? Yep. Are all geared to that singular purpose. We want to try to anticipate hazards and put in controls Understanding that human beings make mistakes, what you just said, you know, we are really good after an incident at Monday morning quarterbacking (laughs) at being able to sit back and say, Oh, I see If the worker had done this, if the worker had done that, you know, that's easy. We have to try to put ourselves in the context of why did the worker make the decision they made at the time they made that decision. Number one, and try to design systems that anticipate that workers will make mistakes, and if they fail, that it doesn't end in disaster. You know, I am on a mission about serious injuries and fatality. I want to prevent all injuries. But let's stop equating, at least in the U.S., all OSHA recordable injuries are not built the same the fact that someone has a cut on their hand and they get two stitches is not the same as being burned over 85% of your body. Can we agree on that? Absolutely. Right. So in the US, we've done a good job of driving down OSHA recordable injuries. But in the last 12 years, we've killed 60,000 people in the workplace. Mm. Something has to change. Something has to change. And so for me, the change is, we have to start thinking about hazards and risk and controls higher up the food chain. Us going and saying, well, why did the worker not identify the hazard? Why the worker didn't put in all the controls? If the worker could do all that, Tom, you and I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) There would be no need for safety professionals. There'd be no need for managers. We just need dispatchers to go out there because all of our trade crafts people would be expert in risk management, controls and hazard identification and that's not that's not feasible and it's not the truth the truth is we're not doing a really good job at the higher executive levels of anticipating what the hazards are and the risk we're waiting till the worker gets into the field and by then it's too late by then it's too late so that's my passion i want people to come home safe
1: yeah, I've sometimes heard it called sticky. We're trying to avoid stuff that can kill you. I think that's that's the main point, rather than as you said, things that can go ouch. Um, although we seem to be coming a long way and moving away from that blame the worker type event, I find it really disappointing. I don't know if you, you, you've seen much of the news lately. We've we've had two major train crashes around the world recently you had the one in the US and um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately we had one of the um, people interviewed about safety on site at that time come out and say that the incident was a hundred percent avoidable which is interesting before any investigations gone underway and then we had this in Greece the other day where a commuter train and a goods train on the same track collide, and we've had the Greek president come out yesterday and say, people will be held to account, justice will prevail, and again, before an investigation even occurs, and you go, seriously? Are we still going three steps forward, two steps back? Because that's what it seems like. I mean, I get frustrated with it.
0: I, I get frustrated with you because people gravitate to catchphrases, human error. Well, I'm going to quote the Dr. Trevor, the great Dr. Trevor Klett, who is one of the pioneers of process safety management. He's saying, he says, saying all accidents are due to human error is like saying all falls are due to gravity. That's true, but it's not very helpful. Somewhere along the line, somebody made a mistake, but we we haven't even finished the investigation in the U.S. yet, and we're already seizing on catchphrases mm. like "human error." We're going to hold people accountable, and I'm not against accountability. But let's find out what happened. And in my experience, having investigated numerous fatality and serious serious accidents, including multiple fatality incidents, it's not one run root cause. Mm. It's usually a bunch of causal factors. I'd love to create up a lexicon of words I'd like to ban Good. that people grab. Human error is one of them. Another one is safety culture. You <laughs> how, know? About, how about root cause? Root cause is another one. You know, it's, it's multiple causal factors that usually, if taken in isolation, nothing happens. Hmm. It takes the sun, the moon, the stars, particularly to line up. And the worker that gets injured or the worker that gets killed or the incident that happens is just the final garnish on the tip of an iceberg that has been building for a long time, particularly in big corporations. So, But people gravitate to when we have an incident like this, even though we try to say blame is the enemy of understanding, even though they may not say they're looking for someone to blame, the first thing is we have to blame somebody. Or something, especially if there's loss of life, and usually yeah. it's multiple things. Yeah, there are that.
1: I I just wish sometimes politicians, whether they be at the national level or at the local level, would resist the temptation to get involved in any sort of safety incident whatsoever, because when they open their mouth, it's clear that they don't have no idea what they're talking about, and they're just hoping for a 15 second like you say a catchphrase a, a, a sound bite that able to resonate with the electors or the voters and 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 it's ridiculous it doesn't help anyone in the long term
0: i think it's actually counterproductive yeah it's yep. counterproductive people want a simple answer and usually it's a complex answer to a, a series of complex problems yep. i'll give you an example <clears throat> back in 2005 at the BP refinery in uh, Texas, Texas City, Texas, it exploded. It killed 15 workers and injured over 200 people. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the operator overfilled the distillation tower, like a 130-foot tower. I, I don't remember exactly how tall it was. But it was only supposed to have six to eight feet of raffinate, which is an for octane additive for gasoline. Well, the operator overfilled the tower. It blew out the top of the tower. It ended up forming a vapor cloud on the ground which was ignited by an idle, idling diesel truck. During the investigation process, the lawyers for the company said to the operator, you know, this is very easy. Why did you overfill it? A child knows you either pull the plug on a bathtub filling up with water or you turn the faucet off. But it, once you got into the investigation, is a lot more complex than that. That worker was on his 28th day of, 12 hour shifts, that mm. worker was doing the task of three other workers in a downturn. His particular indicators were showing that the level in the tank was actually falling. The pass down log from the previous shift wasn't clear. He didn't have a clear understanding that they'd actually already filled the the particular tower. So that I like to use as a good example of how complex problems, multiple causal factors come, and then we try to place blame on an individual when really it was a system's issue yeah yeah and
1: i if i remember correctly his supervisor had gone home partway through the shift, so it was left unsupervised yeah. completely. The other ironic things about that was, and it's a sad thing, but it's some of the people that were killed, the contractors that were killed on site had, uh, I believe, less than an hour ago been celebrating a month lost time injury free. And right. to me, to me that's, I, I worry that safety professionals put too much belief in their own success... By looking at data which could be manipulated, changed, or misinterpreted. And I don't think success in safety should be based on lack of previous incidents or lack of negative outcomes in the past. I don't think that's a true indicator of how safe we are right here,
0: right now. Absolutely. Todd Conklin probably said it best is the does the absence of injuries equal the presence of safety and the answer is no sometimes you're just lucky yeah and the other side of safety is I like to divide safety up into two rounds personal safety process safety when we're talking about personal safety. We're talking about all those, at least in the U S injuries that result in treatment beyond first aid. Mm. And there's some exceptions to that rule. We're talking about process safety. We're talking about preventing the fires, the explosions, the train derailments, the chemical releases that affect not only the individual employees involved, but the environment and, and the surrounding communities, the Deepwater horizon incident, which was a result of loss in life had nothing to do with somebody wearing PPE. It had Mm -hmm. everything to do with a failure of process safety. So I think you got to begin there. We have struggled as a profession in defining what success looks like because we want to reduce it to a metric. And the metric of using total recordable injury rates as predictor of future events is statistically invalid. Mm. You cannot find a study that says because ABC company had an injury last year at 3 p.m. Somebody fell down and broke their shoulder that that company will repeat that injury at any other time in the future. The Deepwater Horizon incident resulted in 11 workers dead, 117 or so cast into the sea, 5 million barrels of crude oil released into the Gulf of Mexico, and we sank the rig to the bottom of the Gulf. That crew had gone seven years without an OSHA recordable injuries. OSHA recordable injuries are not predictive of future events. They never have been. They never will be. So if you're looking for a metric, and this is this is where cutting edge and leading research needs to go, and there are a lot of, a lot of thoughts on this. I don't have all the answers, Tom. I, I don't even know if I know all the questions. I know what we're doing is not working because we're not reducing the fatality trend. I know that TRR is not predictive of future events and that past success does not guarantee future success. Sure. I know those things. But I also think that when we're, we're trying to look at a company and evaluate their risk, we have to look at it holistically. We have to look at the systems they have in place to identify hazards and control risk in the design of the work, and what kind of barriers and defenses they have, so if something fails, it doesn't end in in catastrophe. And that's kind of a merger of process safety and personal safety. But you know, I would like to say if we we run this chart and we look at this and that, and it equals what the future is. Mm-hmm. Nobody can tell you what the future is. Mm-hmm. Fatality incidents typically are ones that happen to an organization, and they may never happen again, yep. because the sun, the moon, and the stars all have to line up. But when we're talking about predicting the future, I think it has to be more complex than a simple mathematical formula of, of what we're using, whether it's DART rates, total recordable injury rates, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I'm beginning to actually believe in myself that safety is an intangible thing. It's a it's an idea it's a notion and i struggle at the moment to think of how we are going to measure that to me it's like almost measuring a person's feelings i mean how do you do that how intense is that? a person's belief in safety how do you measure that short of you know doing these pointless surveys where no one actually speaks the truth because they're still in That's fear right. of losing their job
0: well I agree with you. Um, One thing I would say is for years, people started saying, we want you to track leading indicators, Mm -hmm. leading indicators. Let's move from lagging indicators, which is past incidences, that kind of thing, recordables, incidents that go beyond first aid and get into leading indicators. Mm -hmm. What no one has been able to successfully explain to James
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people
0: today. Leading indicators. I know how many safety meetings we have. I know how many people we put through training. I know how many observations we've done. I've got all this data. But what does it mean? That's right. That's right. What does it mean? If I do 10 safety meetings instead of 12 safety meetings, what does that mean? And no one, no one can tell you, because it really comes down to safety is about identifying hazards and putting controls in place and using the hierarchy of controls and having barriers and defenses in place that if somebody makes a mistake, it doesn't result in disaster. For example, when we talk about lockout tagout, mm-hmm. right, yep. we talk about machine guarding. We may also have a present sensing device that if someone doesn't do lockout, tag out, that violates our procedure, that it cuts the machine off or engages an interlock when they open the door. Why? Because human beings make mistakes. People ask me, James, why do people do what they do? Heck, Heck, I don't know why people do what they do. I can't answer that question. I don't even know why people ask me that question. I can't even explain why a person would ask me why people do what they do. Okay. We don't know why people do what they do. We have to anticipate that people will make mistakes. If your safety management system is built on people being 100% perfect all the time, you don't have a safety management system. You have luck. You hope, (laughs) you hope nothing happens. And if you do, you hope it doesn't result in something serious or, or even deadly outside of that. I don't know that we have a numeric simple formula that we can say this company's done this for the past seven years and that equals safe. Let me give you an example. So, after what we were talking about, BP Texas City in 2005, BP replaced the CEO. They spent billions of dollars, billions with a B, on their occupational safety and health programs. And yet, five years later, the Deepwater Horizon incident happened and the Chemical Safety Board, the U.S. Chemical Safety Board found some of the same causal factors in that incident that they found in Texas City. Nobody wanted it to happen, but it did. It did. And the work crews involved had perfect, perfect personal injury statistics. So I think it's a discussion we need to have and I I really challenge our, our researchers, and there's probably a lot of very intelligent people out there that listen to your podcast, that, that hear your voice. I uh, hope they can be motivated. Let's try to come up with something other than what we're doing in order to gauge the effectiveness of a program. Mm. And I think what's going to happen, Tom, is what you said. It's really abstract. It's abstract. It's yeah. identifying hazards, putting controls in place, Is making people feel comfortable within the workplace to speak up without fear of retribution when they see things. I say this all the time. You want to know where your next accident's going to be? Go out there and talk to the people that do the job. They will tell you. They're the experts. They see it all the time. They know whether the PPE is inappropriate. They know whether or not there's not a place to tie off. They know whether or not the contractor they're working with is actually training their people. They know because they're out there every day. We have to get out of our offices and go down to the craft and talk to people on their level and listen, listen. that's hard for me because I'm a safety professional. I talk a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think think we all do. Just with the leading edge indicators, my thoughts, again, perhaps a little critical. They're all quantitative. There's nothing to measure quality. and, And even if we could measure quality, there's no definition about what's a good meeting, what's a good Absolutely. job safety analysis or job hazard analysis. We just seem to be... Checking boxes? Yeah, checking boxes. Measuring activity, but not actually measuring the quality of that activity.
0: I I, I agree with that 1,000%. And I deal with a a company called Veriforce, which is kind of a, it's a global company now. They own Chaz out of the UK. They own ComplyWorks. In Canada, we have offices all over the world. I'm the chair of their strategic advisory board. And so we deal primarily with hiring clients and evaluating risk inside the supply chain. And one of the things that we've been talking about of late is, yes, we go and say, Let's see your roster that you've trained your people. Well, everybody's got a roster, but how effective was that training? Mm-hmm. How good was the instructor? You know, it's hard to quantify in in a numerical number based on just what you just said. Mm-hmm. So I, I look forward to taking on these issues because that's how we're going to bend the worldwide serious injury and fatality trend. Yeah. We're going to have to move from quantity to quality. Good.
1: All right. Yeah. You, you mentioned deep water horizon. What was your
0: involvement in the aftermath of it? So at the time of the incident, April 20th, 2010, I actually lived in the French quarter in new Orleans
1: mm-hmm.
0: and We were alerted by local media first that a rig was on fire in the Gulf of Mexico, which is not a routine thing. Mm. And when the videos came in, it was an inferno. And I remember sitting with some friends in a cigar shop down in the French Quarter saying, this is going to be worse than Katrina Mm. from the devastation to the environment. And so not long after that, I got called by a company by the name of PEC Safety Management, which was a legacy company, forerunner of Veriforce, present-day Veriforce. And uh, they had gained the contract from BP to provide oil spill response training for workers, site-specific training for workers going into the uh, response phases. And so we did, we, we had the responsibility for training all of the responders before they actually participated in the cleanup on the beach or in the, in the waters in the Gulf of Mexico. So I was chosen as an instructor, went down to a place called Orange Beach, Alabama, mm-hmm. and uh, headed up that training institute down there. In the first 90 days, we had trained 150,000 oil field responders and 300,000 throughout the incident. And so even though I was doing training, it was located right along the beach. And sometimes in the marshes of Louisiana, when I swapped with the instant command. So I saw firsthand the devastation of the ecosystem and not just the, we think of the environment, you know, just as the, 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 the waters, the, the animals, the sands, the beach, but the, the economic devastation that happened along the Gulf coast was, was undescribable businesses closing, boating interest, people that live in the the fishing industry, the commercial fishing industry. I remember a, a a shrimp boat captain went into the wheelhouse and committed suicide with a gun while I was deployed there. You could see real fear that life may change for all of us. And fortunately, we were able to recover from that. But that's where I got my first taste of real field operational safety as a safety professional was during the oil spill. Yeah, yeah.
1: All right. You've carried out, as you said, numerous investigations over your time in the industry. All right. Is there any particular tool that you like to use or you find
0: useful when conducting investigations? I think you have to match the tool to the incident. The more complex, the more serious the incident, the more complexity of the tool. You know, I'm a fan of Taproot, but I'm not opposed Mm to 5Y. ABS, a lot of these different tools and investigations out there. Whatever really fits the the scenario is one that I use. But the main question that I always ask is starting with not the worker, but the management system, Mm -hmm. right? I want to know, working back from the incident, all the way through to the office of the CEO and let the different causal factors of an incident come forth. I, I was inve- I just had a, an instant investigation. Thankfully, it didn't result in a serious injury and fatality, but it had a self potential. They were moving a fire tube off of, a treater shack using a ratchet-type lifting device and dropped a 30-foot pipe on a worker's head. Lucky his hard hat saved him. Well, it's easy to go back out there and and say, we used the wrong lifting device. And what's the corrective action? We're going to use a different lifting mechanism. Well, by the time I was through with that incident investigation, that incident report was 55 pages long. So it's not always as simple. So I challenge safety professionals, don't take the easy way out. The easy way out is always the worker broke the policy, And we're going to retrain the worker. Or fire them. Or fire them. We're going to get rid of the worker, right? When it's usually the symptom of something deeper. There are deeper problems. And most of the time, what I find is we've not identified the hazards in the planning of the work. We We dispatch people and say, go out there and do this job. And we have them do a job hazard analysis or job safety analysis whatever you want to call it when they get to the field by then if they're the first people to look at the hazards it's too late to do anything up the hierarchy of control Mm. i can't put an engineering control in once i get to a job site true you know i'm going to try to do the job that you've assigned me so I'm, i'm very passionate this is something i say all the time Hazards are best controlled in the design phase of the work, in the planning stage of the work. That means if I'm responsible for sending that crew out there, I know what type of rigging they need. I know whether or not I need a crane operator. I know whether or not I need additional training. I'm able to get, you know, elimination, substitution, engineering, and administrative controls in place, because if not, all we're left with is PPE. And PPE were still coming into context with the hazard. So, almost exclusively, one of the causal factors in all instances that have SIF potential is we didn't do a good job in planning the work. Mm. The second thing is almost invariably, there were warning signs. Warning signs that we either didn't recognize, rationalized, or failed to address precursors yeah. little things and usually just like in this particular incident they've been doing it this way the industry had been doing it this way for many many years but nobody had asked the question what if what if that tie-off point that two inch nipple on the outside of this tank snaps due to corrosion or stress cracking what if well, it's never happened before and then it yeah. happened. For, fortunately, it did not end up with someone losing their life. Yeah. Very fortunate. All right.
1: Just some other questions around safety. Fatigue. How seriously in your experience is fatigue taken in industry as a a risk factor?
0: I would like to say it's taken very seriously, but it's not. Mm. It's not taken very seriously. You know, when we start thinking about the capacity of human beings to perform work and perform work safely, sometimes we give lip service to fatigue. Mm. And fatigue, again, is something that we have to control in the planning stage of the work. In our example earlier, that worker was on his 28th day of 12-hour shifts. There is no way that worker was at peak performance. Is it the worker's responsibility to stop the job and say, I'm sorry, I'm tired. Or is it we in management's responsibility to recognize that a worker performing the task of three people on 12 hour shifts for 28 days in a row is not going to be at peak performance. So a lot of times I hear fatigue mentioned, but rarely do I see it considered as a risk factor when we're planning the work. Do we have enough people? Yeah, And, Globally, I don't know we have enough people, particularly in the skilled labor workforce, to go out there and do jobs that we need them to do with all the resources that we should be giving them. So most crews are understaffed, they're undermanned, they're overworked, particularly in construction, but also in oil and gas. The number one killer in our industry in the U.S. and oil and gas industry is driving, Mm. driving. Well, we're putting workers on roads early in the mornings, way before the sun comes up. They have to drive to locations. They work all day. They get back in the trucks. They drive back home. They repeat it again. How many of those is fatigue a causal factor? Not a root cause. 'cause Mm -hmm. We already talked about that. Yep. But a contributor, a contributing factor in those instances. And I think it's probably more times than we'd like to admit.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I tend to make, let's say, poorer decisions the more fatigued I get. Sometimes to the stage I make ridiculous decisions when you look back in hindsight. But that's just me. The things I just also want to touch on: this stopping work, ceasing work, whichever you want to call it. No matter which country, going, you know, we we give we empower workers in certain situations if conditions are met that they can cease work or stop or refuse to undertake, particularly hazardous work. I don't think that works. What's your thoughts?
0: I think it sounds very good in theory. Mm. I also think it becomes a crutch to blame the worker for not stopping the job. Exactly. For failures in the planning stage of the work. Mm. Many times in this particular instance I just referenced when the pipe fell. The question was, why didn't they stop the job? When the question should be, why didn't us up, up the, further up the chain of command stop the job when we were planning this work? We cannot depend upon, as a failsafe for every instance, the worker stopping the job. Mm. There are a lot of influences on the worker stopping the job including the dynamic between those that hire contractors to do the work and those that perform the work. And that's a lot of pressure to put on an hourly worker.
1: Right. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to expect a worker who's under the pump, who's under pressure, who wants to keep their job, who wants to get the job done, to suddenly recognize this situation is ending in disaster before they get there. And then somehow go, okay, logically, this is the point where I must stop. This is the way the conditions have been met and then make that decision. I mean, if we go back and look at Piper Alpha, we had people from other rigs still pumping gas to Piper Alpha when they could see it's a lie. Simply because they didn't think they had the authority to make that decision. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think you're right. Cease work, stop work, whatever you call it. It's it's a great idea and it's a catchy little phrase, but I've I, I've seen it work on, a, I can count them on my fingers, the number of times I've seen a worker proactively take steps and stopped an incident happening.
0: Now, I, I don't want to mislead or misrepresent. I, I'm a fan. Of workers having that right in the u.s mm-hmm. they have a legal right to refuse unsafe work and there's mm-hmm. some criteria that that the worker has to has to meet and you know the worker can't just abandon the job site unless we're told to do so by the by the employer there are a lot of criteria and i encourage people to speak up because workers know the hazards probably better than the people that actually are involved in the safety aspects and in the mm-hmm. planning aspects. But at the same time, I see it more abused as a methodology to continue to blame the worker for failings in the system. Mm-hmm. The worker remembers the person who's going to get hurt. They're the one that's going to get killed. Nobody goes to work to get hurt and get killed. If, if they do, that's a psychological thing mental health issue yeah which you know is way outside the 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 realm of what we're talking about here in occupational safety and health no one chooses to get hurt so when we say to people why didn't you stop the job i say to you why didn't you plan better work why didn't you plan better defenses why didn't you assume that people could make mistakes i mean that's why we have for example when we lift something in rigging We have a qualified crane operator. We have qualified riggers. We have inspection processes of the rigging slings that we're gonna use. We have training and we lift a load and we assume based on all of the things that we've done that the risk of that load falling is very low. But we still develop a controlled access zone around that lift just in case it doesn't happen. So if the rigging snaps, hey, we have a safety violation, it failed. But if it hits the ground, it fails safely, why? Because the personnel, the equipment, all the other things that we need are outside of the controlled access zone, the barrier, the swing radius of the crane. We need to take that mentality to the workplace. But I see a lot of times what workers are really inheritors are is poor design. I'll give you another one. We had a situation, a very complex lockout/tagout uh, scenario on a production site, and all of the valves that needed to be locked out are in this area of the location, real close together. Then one critical valve that that everybody routinely misses is way on the other side, and it's hard to see. That is bad design. That is bad design. When you design a system like that, you're designing the potential for human error in the system and people are going to make mistakes. And so guess what? When that valve's left open, we have a spill. And I'm like, if it's that important, we need a neon sign over it or flashing. But in a well-designed system, simply not turning a single valve should not result in disaster. That's right. That's right. We have to be able to design things. So I'm a fan of prevention through design from an engineering standpoint, but I also think prevention through design techniques can be included when we're planning the work, when we're planning the work. It's too late for the worker to go out there and realize I need this other tool. Yep. Yep. You know, I need this other training. Yeah.
1: Perhaps, perhaps the question we should be asking instead of why didn't a worker stop the work is, why were they put in the the position that they had to make that decision in the first place? Exactly,
0: Mm. exactly.
1: All right, absolute pleasure having you on, James. Our time's coming to an end. I just want to thank you again for being on. And for now, it's time to go. But I look forward to speaking to you again soon.
0: Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure for you for me to appear on your show. Thank you for doing this and getting the word out so we can get all workers home safe from high hazard jobs.
1: Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest
0: of your week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.